0: Welcome to Gente and Health, a podcast by the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture. I am the center's director, David Hayes Bautista, otherwise known as the old Chicano professor. This podcast is an extension of the research we have been conducting for many years. Join us as we discuss the state of Latinos and as we unearth the voices of gente and health. For this program, particularly, as we're going to be talking about the theme of Thanksgiving, uh, we would like to acknowledge, as part of UCLA, the Gabrieleno Tongva peoples as the traditional land caretakers of Tovangar, that is the whole Los Angeles basin, and the Southern Channel Island. We are a land grant institution, but where did that land come from? Well, we need to at least acknowledge and pay our respects to the Honuk Betam, the ancestors, the Achihiron, the elders and the Hinklem, our relatives and relations, past, present, and emerging. This acknowledgement of the Gabrielenos, of the Tonguevar, is really important, of the Chumash, of all the other indigenous groups in California, because as we look back into Thanksgiving, we were all taught, if you will, one version of Thanksgiving, one version of what happened over the past 500 years, I would like us to look at the first Thanksgiving, which was before the pilgrims arrived, uh, and I'd like to look at it from an indigenous perspective. In fact, we need to talk a little bit about the very word pilgrim, or in Spanish it would be peregrino. Now a pilgrim is someone who journeys a long distance, usually through a foreign country to a sacred place. When I was going to what third grade, you first learned US history is about these pilgrims who fled religious persecution. So they came to what's now the United States, they founded their colony, uh, and then they wanted to celebrate their arrival on these shores by having this big feast. And according to this, they invited some indigenous to join them. That is what I was taught. Since then, I have learned a lot more. First of all, I learned that the first Thanksgiving, in the sense of traveling a long distance through foreign lands to a sacred place, didn't happen in 1621. It happened nearly 20 years earlier in 1598. And it wasn't across the Atlantic Ocean, it was up through the well trod land route between uh, today's Southwest and today's Mexico City. In 1598, Again, as we read the uh, histories, uh, a Spaniard, Juan de Oñate, although he was born in Puebla, he was a criollo, his parents were Spanish, uh, led led an expedition uh, from Mexico City up to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And then that's about it. There's a statue to him. uh, And there's a lot of controversy about that statue, as you can imagine. I would like to present the rest of that story, and why we can really call it a Thanksgiving, and, in fact, we can see Indigenous agency at work. And we need to look through the eyes of his wife, Juan de Oñate's wife, who was Isabel Moctezuma. She was his wife. Now, Isabel Moctezuma, gee, does that have anything to do with Moctezuma? It does. In fact, she was the granddaughter of Moctezuma, Shokoyotzin, who was the emperor who um, let uh, uh, invited the Spanish into Tenochtitlan, and of course we know what happened after that. Uh, although we now know a lot more about what happened after that. In fact, uh, the story that I was taught, you know, when I was an undergraduate uh, I was studying Mexican and Latin American history, this is before Chicano studies even. Uh, the Tory story I was taught is that a handful of Spaniards clad in armor overthrew an empire of 25 million, just like that, and just everything indigenous vanished, period. Books were burnt, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, that was the way the Spanish told themselves the history. However, ever since the quincentenary in 1992, there's a new school of history that's developed largely in Mexico and Latin America called the New Conquest History that severely questions the accounts written often decades later by the survivors of the of the Spanish intrusion. And this new new conquest history actually centers the indigenous experience and it reads a little bit differently. So uh, let me just provide a little bit of a context on this so that we can better understand why I call this the first Thanksgiving. Um, and here is where the academic um, overlays the personal. Um, I've mentioned in a number of previous podcasts uh, some of my own family's history. Uh, we are, are Tlalo-Tlacan Indians, and our altepetl, that sort of the nation-state, was founded in 1238. That's almost 800 years ago. It's called Atlautla. And we were part of the larger kingdom of Chalcoa Maquemecam. Atlautla is still there 800 years later. And I have learned more about through the history uh, and the family stories, what happened before, during, and after the so-called conquest. Uh, In fact, uh, we were conquered not by the Spanish. Uh, We were conquered in the year 1488 by the eighth Aztec emperor, Awisotl, and he decided to put an end to our uh, governance. We were, hence, a dependency of Tenochtitlan. However, for nearly 100 years at that point, other indigenous groups had been resisting the uh, Tenochtitlan advance, imperial advance, particularly the Tlaxcaltecan Indians who were never defeated by them, although there had been wars for over a century. So, there had been, been this ongoing struggle between the Tenochtecas and the Tlaxcaltecas. We were held prisoners by the Tenochtecas, but a big push was begun around about 1518. And lo and behold, along comes this guy, Cortez. So, the indigenous invited him along, and he was along for the ride. It wasn't Cortez who defeated um, Tenochtitlan, it was the hundreds of thousands of angry warriors from outside. Uh, the Tlaxcaltecas, the Otomi, the Tlalotlacas, the Chalcas, who defeated and overthrew the Aztec Empire. And as a result, these hundreds, perhaps a few thousand towns in the Valley of Mexico kept their indigenous governance. Thus, um, my ancestors were a part of the ruling dynasty called the Tlatoani, uh, and they kept their job. And you had indigenous government particularly in the Valley of Mexico until 1874, when finally the uh, reforma, the constitution of reform was finally implemented and finally indigenous governance was extinguished and we became part of the Republic of Mexico. Well, let's hold on to that thought that in fact, there was a huge amount of indigenous agency that continued way long after the so-called conquest. Now, here is where we start to get to then the story. Because uh, Isabel Moctezuma, well, we could say she was the granddaughter of um, the empire, um, but things had changed, particularly for Tenochtitlan. When Juan de Oñate wanted to do an expedition to the north, uh, there was a poet who was embedded, Gaspar de Villagra, who actually wrote an account of the journey from Mexico City to. Uh, found Santa Fe. Uh, and actually, it's uh, probably the first epic poem in a Western language written in Spanish. Um, but in his poem, he gives us actually quite a bit of information about indigenous agency. So that as there was a start to develop this expedition, uh, he quotes the indigenous in the Valley of Mexico. And He quotes them and he quoted this. Everything's in verse and rhyme, etc. So I'm sure they didn't say it quite like this. And I'm just going to jump over to the English. And in the poem, quoting these, he says, In the same place we call New Mexico, the oldest folk of Mexico, he called them aquellos más antiguos mexicanos, point out that the far off northland señalan. A levantado norte. Once they say and do affirm themselves to be descended, donde dice y afirman ser de allá su descendencia. Oh, is that possibly Astlan? Well, we don't know exactly where Astlan was located, but the um, movement of peoples from the north to the south had been going on for at least a thousand, if not a couple of thousand years. And Not only the, um, if you will, the Mexica said that, but the Tlalotlaca and even the Otomi and others talked about their ancestors coming from the north to the Valley of Mexico. So the uh, Mexica were one of the last groups that arrived. They uh, wound up in Chapultepec. Now, when this new expedition was being planned, we need to understand uh, that for many uh, indigenous, they were indeed undergoing a uh, pilgrimage, if you will. They're going back, but to their point of origin, they're gonna make a pilgrimage to where they came from. You know, the Spanish is, they're going to do an entrada um, into an area that hadn't been under Western rule, but for the indigenous, it was a different experience. Now, along with the indigenous, uh, The smallpox epidemic had uh, been taking a toll of indigenous all all up and down the uh, Americas, both north and south. And even the Valley of Mexico was no exception. Even though they maintain indigenous rule, the population was severely uh, decimated by the newly introduced uh, smallpox. So to replace the uh, declining population of indigenous, new populations were brought in, for example, from Africa. Now that would include uh, conquistadores such as Juan Garrido who originated in West Africa, but wound up participating in the battle of Tenochtitlan alongside the Spanish. But most were uh, introduced as slaves and there's a fairly significant slave population in Mexico during the colonial period, although many slaves escaped. Uh, San Lorenzo outside of Veracruz was founded by the were called Cimarrones who escaped uh, and they actually, were now called a precursor of Mexican independence. Also the treasure fleet began moving uh, between Acapulco and Manila starting in 1565. So Asians uh, came uh, into New Spain. Uh, They could be from China, Japan, Korea, the Philippines, India, Pakistan, as we know them today. Uh, But Asians also then became introduced. And even the Iberians who often came to uh, New Spain had a couple of characteristics that would set them apart from the pilgrims up north, which was um, the Jewish folks had been kicked out in 1492 from Spain. Many came to the Americas seeking refuge from the Inquisition. And King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella were so happy about the expulsion of the Jews that a few years later they expelled all the Muslims and many of them came across. So as Juan de Oñate, began to pull together his expedition of nearly 500 people. It was not composed of Spanish, primarily. Uh, One of the biggest contingents were Tlaxcaltecan Indians, who also wound up setting up uh, their own cities later on in Texas and Chihuahua, uh, Sonora, Coahuila, all the way through the north. Uh, There were also Otomi Indians with them. There were Africans. There were uh, Asians, there were most likely Jewish, and most likely Muslim, and then some Spaniards. So, Gaspar Perez de Villagra was the embedded poet who wrote a book that has been published by the University of New Mexico. I would strongly suggest uh, reading it um, because he recounts their journey from Mexico City, they went up north um, through Durango. And then they had to cross the Sonoran Desert. Now, most of Mesoamerica, uh, below the rain belts where corn was grown, there's a pretty good amount of water. You can do dry farming, basically from about Zacatecas south. But from Zacatecas north, it gets very dry. Can't do dry farming. uh, You need irrigation. There's a lack of water. This group of people, nearly 500 people, had to go across the Sonora desert. And the poet Grad described how it was. Uh, and there is in fact, a stretch of that road called the Jornada del Muerto, the journey of the dead, where it's about 50 miles without water. Now we think ah, 50 miles, you know, know—that's barely between uh, LA and Orange County. But if you're walking, and you have cattle, and you have horses and kids and families, and there is no water, this can be very serious. Via Grau wrote, for seven long, hard days journeying, we walked through rough and craggy lands. We did consume the poor provisions we had brought. So their food was running out, their water was running out. Then it got really bad. Four complete days did pass away, in which we drank no drop of water. He had hit the jornada del muerto. And they were so thirsty. They were so heated up inside. He said, exhaling, exhaling, living fire. Our hope given up. Entirely lost. We were almost all wishing to die. I mean, it was that bad when they got so thirsty. Their cattle began to die. Their horses began to die. Then they went up a little rise. And there they saw el Rio Grande del Norte. Water. Immediately, everybody rushed to the water. The people drank their fill, the cattle did, and as he uh, wrote, the fifth day opened us the door, and we all happily did come upon the roaring Rio del Norte. And they were so happy about being saved, about finding the water, that they decided to camp, and the hunters went out, they hunted fowl, um, others fished. Villegra continued. We found many cranes and ducks and geese, and having hunted and fished much, on huge spits and coals, we put a huge supply of meat and fish. So they uh, cooked a huge meal, a huge meal. And they invited the local Indian tribe, the Mansos, uh, to eat with them. Then, after the meal was over, seeing as they couldn't turn on a football game on Thanksgiving Day, Uh, What they did is they, first of all, had a mass with a sermon. But then, as Villagra continued, and when the services were done, they did present a great drama that the noble captain Farfan had composed. Theater was a common way both of entertainment and also a common way of evangelization, you know, to teach the biblical stories to the indigenous population. And quite often these plays would be uh, performed in Nahual, Otomi or other indigenous languages. This time on the banks of the Rio Grande del Norte, it was probably done in Spanish, I would imagine. So, after they had stopped and had given thanks, and for the indigenous, they're now entering the territory whence had come their ancestors. This was indeed their pilgrimage. They continued on north to found the town of Santa Fe. When they built the church, In Santa Fe, there weren't enough workers to actually build a church. And according to the records, five thousand new Indians from Tlaxcala went north to build the church. And my hunches, many of them stayed there. Thirty years later, of course, the story that we were taught happened. You know, folks came across the Atlantic; uh, they came to this. New land, they thought, that where nobody lived. Um, they had their Thanksgiving, that they had survived the uh, horrors of the first winter. And, of course, what they left out is they had found the food that had been stored by the indigenous for the indigenous use for their winter. But the pilgrims went ahead and ate it, thinking, oh, the divinity had given us this food. Uh, they also spread smallpox. So that their landing um, walloped the local indigenous pretty hard. But this was uh, part of the story that we get left out. We just know that, okay, they had a great big meal. They invited the indigenous. For about the next uh, 300 years, Thanksgiving was a local regional holiday celebrated up in New England. And after 1848, when California uh, became part of the United States and they had the gold rush, a lot of people from the East coast came to California and they continued. This old custom uh, that I have here in front of me, an English language newspaper from 1851 said, the good old custom of Thanksgiving has been duly observed. And they call it Pilgrim's Day was celebrated by the Sons of New England and their guests in honor of the band who stood upon the shore of Plymouth 230 years ago. Pilgrim's Day, they called it, Sons of New England. Well, the Sons of indigenous of Mesoamerica had beat them to the punch. Nonetheless, we're here now. uh, And in 1855, we have notice of the first, if you will, Thanksgiving being celebrated by Latinos. Uh, In fact, uh, in Pio Pico's house, they had a Thanksgiving banquet. In 1863, during the American Civil War, in in part caused by the entry of California as a state that had abolished slavery and offered uh, citizenship without respect to race, and by the way, also gave rights, uh, property rights to married women. Um, In many ways, California's past as a Mexican state led to the American Civil War between the slave states and the free states. And in 1863 was when Abraham Lincoln used the Day of Thanksgiving as part of his movement to pull the country together to win the war, and in 1863, both in Spanish and English, the announcement was made that uh, El Presidente Lincoln uh, had set aside this day officially as a day for Thanksgiving por los beneficios recibidos durante el año. I think we've all seen this. Um, these paintings of that first Thanksgiving, these long tables covered with linen, uh, and these dishes being prepared, and the indigenous invited in. A number of museums have now uh, done uh, meta naming rather than take the pictures out because they were actually not the way events happened. They have actually put in explanations as to why they were so inaccurate and why would the painters have painted them so inaccurately. So it's it's kind of an interesting. Uh, counter to the narrative we were given, but still doesn't quite give us the indigenous voices. If we want to look at the indigenous voices, uh, we can see them very clearly in the dishes that have become sort of traditional for uh, Thanksgiving. I mean, To begin with, you have to have the guajolote, right? The turkey, chompipe, I believe it's called in Guatemala. Um, you have to have the papas, the potatoes. Now, they originated more in South America and the Andean region but without potatoes I mean how could you have turkey without potatoes and along with uh, potatoes you have to have maize the corn uh, the maize mice perene that was first domesticated about 5000 years ago still a big part of thanksgiving oh then the camote camote that's also another indigenous food the calabaza the pumpkin pie even the arandanos the um, cranberries these were all indigenous foods. So we think of them as traditionally American foods, but they are again part of indigenous agency speaking to us this very day. So I hope we have a broader idea of Thanksgiving, that it was in fact, if we look at the original Thanksgivings, they weren't so much European as they were also indigenous And to these days, we should always be looking for the indigenous voice when we hear the history of not only the United States, not only of Mesoamerica, but of the entire Western Hemisphere. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you all for listening. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't done so. Our executive producers are Adriana Valdez and Seda Santiso-Greenwood. Our writers are Brandy Lopez and Giselle Hernandez. Editing was provided by Elias Rodriguez and the music this week was provided by Mariachi de Uclazlat. Tune in for the next episode as we delve further into topics of Latino culture, gente, and health.